0: Well, I hope and pray that as we were challenged last week, many of you were able to meet with family over Thanksgiving, friends that are not walking with the Lord, and that you were able to have intentional gospel conversations. I I pray that was the case. Well, as was mentioned this morning, um, we are kicking off our new Advent series today, and over the next few weeks, you will have the privilege an opportunity to hear from many of our pastors. And then on the 26th of December, we will resume our study in Philippians. And I'm going to kick it off today with Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. Again, the title, uh, Visiting Mary, an awesome announcement. And here's the big idea. The appropriate response to the good news is trust and service or trust and obedience. The appropriate response to the good news is trust and service. You know, news oftentimes requires an immediate response. For example, just last week, driving in the, in the van, one of my kids said, Dad, I gotta go potty. Okay, we gotta take care of this now, right? I gotta go bad. That's news, requires an immediate response. Here's some other examples. You find out there's going to be a massive storm tomorrow. That's the news. Response, we better batten down the hatches. We better get ready. Find out you're sick, really sick. Response, take some medicine or seek treatment. You're having a baby. That's big news. right? Get, get that baby room ready. Start, uh, <laughs> start buying a bunch of diapers because you're going to need them. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Response. What do we learn from today's text? I want us to look at three things, all concerning the good news, right? This is the awesome announcement. Our text concerns news, the news of God's faithfulness. Everything promised in the Old Testament regarding a Savior king is coming to fulfillment. Praise God, God is faithful. This news, as we're going to see later on, requires a response. But what I want us to do this morning, I I want us to look at, one, the content of the good news. I, I want us to, number two, look at the players involved in this good news, who's involved. And then number three, I want us to answer the question, what is the appropriate response to this good news? Because, again, as we just talked about, news requires a response, so what do we learn from today's text? Number one, the content of the good news. And I want to do some biblical theology. I want to look back at the Old Testament. I want to talk about kingship. I want to talk about expectations in the first century in Jewish Palestine. And so we're going to do a little bit of groundwork, and then we'll look at our text. But again, the content of the good news. The Bible must be read in context. Jesus is king. Context is queen. i said that a few times. For example, the New Testament must be read with the Old Testament in mind. You will never fully appreciate the events recorded in the Gospels unless you are familiar with the Old Testament. And the major theme of Scripture that moves the story of redemption forward is promise and fulfillment. In today's passage, if you listen carefully, if you read carefully. Today's passage, what we just heard read from Brother Aaron, is rich with promise language. Our text looks back to God's promise concerning a forever king and a forever kingdom. So let's do a little Old Testament review concerning the theme of kingship. In the early chapters of Genesis, so we're going way back, we're going back, back. We're going back to the Old Testament. In the early chapters of Genesis, God establishes his kingship. He rules over his people, Adam and Eve. In fact, he rules over the cosmos. He's the creator of all. Amen? He's king. God is the perfect king. He is gracious. He's good. He's kind. He's just. He's awesome. And yet, God's people reject God from being their king time and time again. That, that is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, right? God is king. He establishes his kingship. But time and time again, God's people reject God from being their king. We see this first in Genesis 3 with the fall. We see it again in Exodus 32 with the golden calf narrative. And later in 1 Samuel 8. Israel, in 1 Samuel 8, requests a king, a human king, so that they can be like the surrounding nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, we find one of the most tragic declarations of all of Scripture. 1 Samuel 8, 7, listen to this. And the Lord said to Samuel, again, what did the people ask for? They asked for a king. Essentially they're saying, God, you know, you being king is not sufficient, not good enough. We want to be like the surrounding nations. We want a human king. And how does the Lord respond to that? The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Man. For they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And that's all of us. All of us have done that. That is. At the heart of human sinfulness, we reject God from being king over our lives. We say, no, I'm king, I can do a better job. What we see throughout Scripture is that life without God as king only leads to disappointment, dismay, division, and death. And what we're made to see relatively quickly in Scripture is that life without God as king simply won't do. Just take a moment today to read through the kingship narratives. Life without God as king simply won't do. Why? Because God means to be king over his created and rescued people. What we see throughout Scripture, again, we're going to go big picture. I'm preparing the ground, and then we're going to move into our text. But what we see throughout Scripture is that God creates and rescues, and that those he creates and rescues, he means to rule over. Amen? Those that God creates and rescues, he means to what? Rule over. It's his right. It is his right. One of the clearest examples of this is seen in the Exodus. In the early chapters of Exodus, God reveals that he, and not Pharaoh, and not the false Egyptian deities, but he alone is truly king. He delivers Israel from slavery and then graciously commissions them to be his light of the world people. Exodus nineteen six. And you shall be to me a kingdom. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as mentioned above, it doesn't take long for Israel to reject God as their king. Exodus 32. Because life without God as king won't do, the saving promise of God includes his royal rule over his people. So God's promise of rescue includes a king. A king. God would provide a king who would serve as his agent of rescue and healing. And this king to come that's promised throughout the Old Testament, would put things right. And this brings us to the promise of the Messiah, which simply means anointed one. The Jews in Jesus' day were longing for this king to come. His coming would be what? It'd be good news. It'd be great news, right? In fact, inherent to the promise of the gospel is the promise of God's rule, a king. We see this in Mark 115 at the launch of Jesus' public messianic ministry. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Think of it this way. The gospel includes the promise of both a new heart and a new king. And the former, a new heart, is necessary in order for God's people to both acknowledge and embrace the new king, right? So a new heart is needed in order for us to recognize and respond to the latter, the new king. One more thing. Not only would this future king rule over God's people, but he would rescue God's people. He would do this by both living for his people and dying for his people. So think of it this way. This is simple. Write this down if you would like. The new king would rule, rescue what represent the new king, so again, if i, I am <laughs> I am summarizing a lot of Old Testament promise, the new king to come, the messiah we 'll talk about here briefly he 's going to come from the line of David, this new king would really do three things he would what he would rule, he would rescue, and he would represent and that is the Old Testament backdrop against which our passage this morning must be read, all right so Gabriel's awesome good news announcement to Mary is what? It is kingly in theme and content. And this really begins in verse 32. So now we're getting into the content of the good news. Next we'll look at the players involved. And then lastly, what is the response? What is the response? So, the content. Again, I'm arguing and I think it's very clear that the content is kingly. The theme is kingly. Verse 32, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne, throne of his father David. And He will reign. What do kings do? They reign. He will reign over the house of Jacob. He will reign over God's people forever. And of his kingdom, if you weren't listening, just in case, his kingdom, there will be no end to it. It's forever. <laughs> I mean, that's good news. Forever king, forever kingdom. Mary, and again, you can't blame her, said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's very significant. There's some Old Testament language that we're going to look at here briefly. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy. Ooh, the Son of God. Okay, so man, I I wish I could spend two hours. Don't worry, I'm not. But two hours unpacking all of this. This is so good. Great. So how is the coming king described? Great. He will be great. The Greek word? Megas. Mega. Mega means what? Big. Great. He will be megas. This pertains to being great in terms of status. He will be important. Are any of us good, let alone great? No, but he will be what? He'll be great. He will be supremely important. As one scholar notes, and this was interesting, when used by itself to describe someone, magos refers only to God in the Old Testament. Therefore, it's possible and likely that this is an intentional reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. He will be great. Who alone is great? God. I mean, what a way to start an announcement. He's going to be great. Who alone is great? God. Hint, hint. Son of the Most High. This title simply means Son of God. Son of God. Now, again, we we typically ascribe to that title, and I believe rightfully so, deity, right? Son of God. But it's more than that. Israel, in Exodus 4, is called God's son. Is Israel divine? No. This title, Son of the Most High, Son of God, means that this individual to come, his relationship with God is going to be unique, it's going to be special, it's going to be intimate, they're going to be close. Oh man, and then the throne. The throne of his father David. Who sits on a throne? A what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign. Who reigns? Kings reign. He will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, the obvious background here is 2 Samuel 7 and the promise of the Davidic covenant. The Messiah was expected to come from whose line? David's line. That's repeated throughout the Old Testament. And this is already highlighted for us in verse 27 with the mention of Joseph's Davidic lineage. But if you know 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7 looks ahead to God's great forever king and his forever kingdom. Now also in the background here is Isaiah 9. 6 and 7. Let me read this quickly. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I'm I'm hearing Handel's Messiah in my mind right now as I read this. You know, talk about a date. Early on, Haley and I weren't married yet, and I surprised her by taking her to Houston to witness Handel's Messiah. And I was like, oh, she's gonna love me now. She, She liked it. (laughs) <laughs> she, I loved it. She liked it. It was it was a sweet moment, sweet moment. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. I'm going to sing it. I'm not going to. I want to. Dave, Dave said, sing it. Oh, no, you don't mean to sing it. Oh, it's hard. I want to. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no what? No end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, every time we find ourselves in an election year, I warn God's people, I plead with God's people to not put their hope in a political leader. Yes, we should vote, and we should vote as the word of God leads us, but we should not put our hope in a man. We should always put our hope in the true king, the supreme king, the king of kings, who is sovereign over all, who is Jesus. Every earthly king falls short, but Jesus is the perfect king. Amen? And he's come and he's done his kingly work. He's lived and he's died and he's been raised to establish God's saving rule for his people. And he commissions us to go and extend his saving rule by making disciples. There is no king like Jesus. There's no king like Jesus. I wish we had more time. I would love to unpack Isaiah 9 more, but suffice it to say, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7 speaks of the promised king's divine identity, his Davidic lineage. He's going to come from the line of David and his eternal rule. And then we have the title Holy, Son of God. Why will he be holy? Who will come upon Mary? She's a virgin. She's not been with a man. How is this going to happen? By the Spirit of God, amen? And because of that, he, the promised king, will be called, what? Holy Son of God. As the Holy Son of God, born of a virgin, Jesus was set apart, anointed, and empowered by the Spirit for a specific task, the rescuing of God's people through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. Now, when we hear that adjective, holy, we, we tend to think of character, right? Man, that dude is so holy. right? I mean, he's just he's a godly brother. That's not what it means here. Is Jesus holy? Yes, perfectly holy, sinless. But this word here means set apart, the Spirit of God would set apart the Son of God for a specific task or mission, which is what? The saving of God's people through his perfect life, sacrificial death and victorious what? Resurrection. He was set apart for a specific purpose. There is no king like Jesus. Now the mention man I, I could talk about this all day, please don't, oh, I will. You watch it, I will. The mention of the Holy Spirit is significant. I've often told people, like, learn to listen, learn to read the Gospels, the New Testament, with Jewish ears. I did a Master's of Arts in Old Testament with a focus on Hebrew language, and I did a Master of Arts in New Testament with a focus on Greek. In doing the MAOT, the Master of Arts in Old Testament, oh, It made the New Testament study so much sweeter. Having lived in the Old Testament. And I haven't mastered anything, by the way. I've been mastered by the Word of God. I have not mastered anything. But the, the mention of the Holy Spirit is significant. If you know the Old Testament and you know God's good promises regarding rescue, salvation, who's always involved? Who always appears? It's the Holy Spirit. So inherent to all the great messianic promises, especially in Isaiah, is the activity of the the Spirit of God. Let me give you two. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my, here's how you're going to recognize the king. Because God says, I'm going to put my what? My spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is why Jesus' baptism is so significant. What happens at his baptism? The Spirit of God descends on him. Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to your king, right? When the Spirit of God comes, descends upon Jesus, what are we to make of that? He's the guy. He's the king. Marked by the Spirit of God as promised. Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is "...upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound." The mention of the Holy Spirit by Gabriel would have alerted both Mary and the early readers of Luke's gospel to the significance of the time. The time of fulfillment had come. God was on the move... To rescue his people. The coming king, Jesus Christ, declares the faithfulness of God. Javin, where are you, bud? He asked me, hey, are you going to talk about Aslan today? And it just so happens, buddy, I am. So I uh, I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Clark last year. And then recently, uh, me and Clark and Luke started to watch the first movie. And there's something really significant that you notice early on. What, what happens to winter? What happens to the snow? It begins to melt, which is a sign of what? The king has come back. Aslan has returned. I think there's a line in the book. It says that when Aslan shakes his mane, it will be spring again. It's very British, right? It's hard to make that work. <laughs> But you notice in the book, in the movie, that as the snow is melting and as the curse of winter is breaking, it's evidence, it's a sign that Aslan is on the move. The mention of the Son of David and the activity of the Holy Spirit are both clear evidences. They are signs that God is on the move. What he promised to do, he is doing. It is fulfillment time. Amen? Let me ask this question. Who is your king today? Who is your king today? Do you know the one true king, Jesus Christ? Is he currently ruling over your life? Have you stepped off the throne and acknowledged that you're not king? That's repentance, okay? Repentance is stepping off the throne. It's saying, I'm no longer gonna go my way, I'm gonna go God's way. I'm gonna trust in Jesus. I am not a good king. Christ is king. Have you done that? And he's not just a king. He is the king. The king of the universe. The savior king. Who did his kingly work. Who went to battle at the cross. He didn't come to wield the sword. He came to take the sword. For his people. Dying in our place. If he's not your king. If you've not trusted in Jesus Christ. Then you have no hope of forgiveness in reconciliation to God. Only in Christ can we be forgiven. Only in Christ can we be brought back into fellowship with God. Is true? He's a good king, amen. Now, what else do we learn in today's passage? Number 2. And these last two points are quick. Let's talk about the players involved in the good news. It's easy to miss the references to the Trinity in our passage. The miracle of Jesus' birth is explained by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Mary is troubled and confused, and rightfully so, by Gabriel's announcement. How could she be pregnant as a virgin? And as seen in verse 35, her pregnancy was God's doing, the result of the Holy Spirit's activity we must remember that God's work of salvation is triune in shape. Does that make sense? God's work of salvation is triune in shape. All persons of the Godhead are involved. The Father is involved. The Son is involved. The Holy Spirit is involved. Again, just in these few verses that we're looking at today, what do we see? The Father sends His angelic messenger Gabriel to announce the coming king. Furthermore, the Father sends the Son to rescue, represent, and rule over his people. Think of the three R's. That was the expectation the king would come, the Messiah, to represent, rescue, and rule over. The Father is mentioned as what? The Most High and as God in verse 35, verse 32. And of course, the Son comes, the Incarnation, to accomplish His kingly work, and to rule over His rescued people. The Son, Jesus, is emphasized as the long-awaited Davidic King who will rule with justice and righteousness. And finally, we have the mention of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' miraculous birth was God's doing by means of the Holy Spirit. So again, in these few verses, we have the mention of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's work of salvation is triune in shape. Now, this is cool. This is one of those moments you're like, oh, man, that's sweet. You ready? Like, you'll think about this all day long, I promise you. You'll be eating your turkey leftovers, your, your stuffing. But, oh, man, that's, yeah. Okay, cool. Back to dessert now. The parallels between Luke 1:35 and Genesis 1, 2 cannot be missed. What am I talking about here? Whereas at the first creation... The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's Genesis 1-2. The work of new creation begins with the Spirit overshadowing Mary. Gabriel is announcing that in the birth of Jesus, the work of new creation has begun. Again, what do we see in Genesis 1-2? The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then here in our text, Luke 1-35, the Spirit, the same Spirit overshadowing Mary the work of new creation has begun. As the Spirit was at work at the first creation, so the Spirit is at work initiating the new creation. Amen? The point is this. When we talk about Christmas, the birth of Jesus, we must recognize that this involves all members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the last question, last point. What is the appropriate response To such an announcement, I mean, the the King has come—not a King, but the King. God is faithful; He's done what He promised to do. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—the one true God—has acted on His saving promise to rescue His people through the King, Jesus Christ. So, what do you? So what? What do we do now? What's the response? Listen with that, and I think Mary is a great example of a proper response to the good news of Jesus Christ. The appropriate response to the good news, verse thirty-eight, and Mary said, "Behold," in Greek, do. "Behold, I am the servant of the Lord." Ooh, let it be to me according to your word. Oh, now you're like, so what? I mean, girl, scared. Right? It's a big announcement. Do you realize what this would have meant for her? Again, listen to Mary's response Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There was nothing else to be said, no need for further conversation. She has responded appropriately. Mary trusts the word of the Lord. And this trust is evidenced by her submission to God's plan. Let it be. The Beatles did not start that. It goes back to Mary, right? Let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. She doesn't doubt. She believes. She doesn't argue. She obeys. She comes under the word of God. Mary embraces God's call on her life. Now, this was extremely risky. Let's talk about the risk here. Would people believe her? Would they understand? Would her family support her? Do you know that in the Jewish world, the penalty for adultery was death? When homegirl gets pregnant, and she's not yet married, and she's claiming to be a virgin, it don't look good. What was the penalty? Death. Death in this world. She could lose everything. Her family, her fiance, and even her life. This is serious stuff. Here we see the cost of discipleship. God's revealed will in his word is not easy. But it's worth it. Amen? It's worth it. What is the Lord calling you to today? Think about that. What is the Lord calling you to today? If you're a husband, I'm going to give you all the answers, okay? I know the answers. Man, you don't know me. I I don't have to. I know what the Word of God says, okay? So listen, listen up. If you're a husband today and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, he's calling you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're a mother or a father, he's calling you to faithfully bring God's word before your children. To train them up in the way they should go. If you work, raise your hand if you work. You have a job. If you work, he's calling you, according to his word, to do your work as unto the Lord for his glory and not yours. Not selfishly to accumulate more, but to serve and to generously give of yourself for the sake of others. If you're a young man here today, he's calling you to live a sexually pure life, to guard your heart and your eyes, to turn from sexual sin and to live as a godly man. And if you're a young woman, he's calling you to find your identity in Christ and not in the world. He's calling you to be more concerned about cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit, your character, than your physical beauty. God's will for his people is revealed in his word. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and then chapter 5, 16 to 18. Paul writes, "'For this is the will of God, your sanctification.'" that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then we move to chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you come under that? Is it risky? Yes. Is it going to cost you? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes, because Christ is most worthy. He is king and there is no other. This is God's revealed will for His people in His word. Are you able to say like Mary, let it be to me according to your word? Let it be to me according to your word. Husbands, let it be to me according to your word. Wives, let it be to me according to your word. Children, let it be to me according to your word. Church members, let it be to me according to your word. Andreas Kostenberger, I was just thinking if we had another son one day. We'll see. He writes, consider Mary, a young, vulnerable Jewish girl whose entire future and hope for a normal life were jeopardized by God's plan for her life. But here's the kicker. Mary did not draw back in order to protect herself and her future. She embraced God's future and desire for her life. What about you? That was good. Jesus calls his followers to trust and obey. Like Mary, are you willing to risk everything for the Lord? Have you said, and are you continuing to say, like Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, remember the Christian life is not safe. But it's worth it because Christ is worth it. He is most worthy. He is king. Let me sum it up. Let me sum it up. Let me try to at least. Gabriel's announcement of good news to Mary is that the long-awaited king was coming. She would miraculously bear this child by the Holy Spirit. This would be the long-awaited Son of God and Son of David the Messiah who would rule over, represent, and rescue God's people. And as we saw, this saving work would be triune in shape. The Father would send His Son. His Son would be set apart by the Spirit to accomplish His kingly work. Since Jesus is the true King... The question one month's answer is this. So again, what's established here in our text and throughout scripture is that Jesus is the true king and it begs the question, is he your king? Is he your king? Have you bent the knee to King Jesus? Have you trusted in him for forgiveness and a forever relationship with God? And finally, like Mary, have you submitted To the revealed will of God, God's plan as laid out for us in His Word. Have you said, let it be? (laughs) It's your word, let it be. Have you decided that Jesus is worth your very life? Have you settled for a safe and easy form of Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all, one marked by little or no faith and little or no risk? Here's how our passage moves. If you're taking notes, you're like, why didn't you just say this and be done? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. This is God's faithful provision. He is worth our very lives, so trust him and obey. (laughs) That's the text, all right? Jesus is king. This is God's faithful provision. He is worth our very lives, so trust him and obey. One more time. Jesus is king. This is God's faithful provision. He is worth our very lives. So, what? Response Trust Him and obey. Let me end with these discussion questions. Who is your king today? Now, think about that. And if you say it's Jesus, what is the evidence of that? Oh, yeah, you know, my my king's Jesus. Well, how, how do we know? how do you know? What is the evidence that Jesus is your king? So who is your king today? And if it's Jesus, what is the evidence that he is ruling over your life? Number two, what does today's passage teach us about the promised king? And number three, have you said like Mary to the Lord, behold, I am your servant. Why or why not? Have you, like Mary, said to the Lord, I am your servant? Let it be to me according to your word. Why or why not? I'm so thankful for the gospel. Amen. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I've been trying to emphasize more and more that, again, we owe a debt. All of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. That's what it means to sin. We owe a debt and we can't pay it because that debt is a perfect life. But one has paid it. One has lived a perfect life. And it's the king we've been talking about all morning. How does Gabriel describe him? The first word. He will be great. None of us are good, let alone great, but he will be great. He is great. He lived the perfect life. He paid our debt. But because we've not lived a perfect life, We've fallen short. What do we deserve? Punishment. We've sinned against an infinitely holy and perfect God. Therefore, we deserve eternal punishment. Hell, God's wrath forever. But guess what? Not only did Christ pay our debt, he took our punishment. What? That sounds crazy to the world, but that is the gospel. Jesus lived the life we could not live. What a king! It doesn't stop there. He also died in our place, satisfying God's wrath against our sin. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. Oh my goodness! Is it true? Yes. And the Bible says, if you trust in Jesus and turn from your sin, you can be forgiven. You can be a part of God's forever family. Right with God. Declared right, not because of what you've done, but because of what He's done. Amen? In Christ, there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is eternal life. How have you responded to the gospel? Are you more concerned about what your friends, your family, or your co-workers might think? Are you more worried about your sins that you'll have to give them up? What do we learn in our text today? Jesus is worthy of our lives. No one can satisfy like Jesus. No one can comfort like Jesus because no one but Jesus can save. Amen? Trust in the King and give Him your life. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to save sinners like us. And I pray that all of us today who were here would be able to say, like Mary, Lord, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Help us as a church family together to come under the word of God. And we pray, Jesus, that you would rule over us by your word for your glory and our good and the saving of many souls. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.